Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Now, before we start today's show, I just wanted to alert you to a new button that I've posted on the website. Uh, Subscribe by email. If you click on that button and put in your email address, you can have have an email sent to you every time I post a new show. And because these shows aren't done on a regular basis, uh, that's probably the quickest way to stay up to date with the show unless you use one of the other subscription systems. But for those who are less um, computer savvy, subscribing by email is probably the easiest way. So I urge you to do that. Um, Now let's crack on with the matter in hand. I'm talking to Mike Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, our oldest, most favourite guest on the show. Uh, Mike, hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, Dominic. Good to speak to you. And it's great to speak to you. Now, um, we're going to have a quick uh, chat today about the markets in general, and I wanted to start with China. Now, the Chinese stock market peaked in... I suppose, October or November of 2007, a good year before the Western uh, stock markets peaked. And it made its low, it it crashed, uh, and it made its low in November 2008. And, of course, Western stock markets didn't make their low for another six months. Um, China, the stock market in China, actually peaked again last August Um, And it's been in a nasty decline ever since. And that decline has sped up dramatically over the last three months. Um, What can I say? China appears to lead the Western stock markets. And is that a sign that this stock market correction that's begun in the West is something to be very wary of? It could morph into something much bigger. What, What do you think about that, Mike? Well, I agree with you. The Chinese market has been leading global markets for some time, and that's really to be expected. Uh, China has been spending a lot of money on commodities. That's been fueling uh, some global uh, uh, global uh, business uh, from places like Australia and Canada, and really right around the world. China's buying all sorts of goods, and not only commodities. Um, and it's fueling the uh, Asian economy, which is then in turn buying some things from the West and the rest of the world uh, in places like Brazil, too. Um, so China is important. It is it is an, it is a leader. And um, I, I like to watch the Chinese uh, uh, markets. I watch Shanghai. I also watch the uh, the uh, ETF, which trades here in Hong Kong. And as you said, that peaked back in August. Uh, but I'm going to p- post a little chart here, which shows the August, uh, sorry, the uh, iShares uh, uh, FTSE uh, Xinhua index of 50 stocks, superimposed on top of the FXI, which are China stocks, which trade in the U.S. And that chart's quite interesting because they actually show that the Hong Kong index peaked in August and then made a sort of double top, the slightly higher level back in uh, November, and that was when the peak came in the FXI. So we saw two peaks, both of them peak in an important way, back in November, 
And they kind of stayed around that same level until the beginning of this year. And then since, basically since the 1st of January, uh, both indices have been sliding uh, with one major bump along the way. And uh, we're probably um, relative to that top um, back in uh, November, December. We're probably a good 20, 25% off the top now. So that's a pretty big fall. Um, and what's interesting about that is it's really accelerated, as you say, since the beginning of April. It's really come down pretty sharply. Um, it's lost about, uh, both indices have lost about 10 or 15%, at least probably more like 15%, just eyeballing the charts here. Well, I'm looking at the Shanghai Stock Exchange Composite Index, and that's gone from about 3,200 in uh, mid-April down to 2,500 today. So that's a drop of 700 points, uh, or, well, what's 3,200 divided by 7? It's kind of 4.5, so... You know, yeah, it's well over twenty percent. Yeah, it is, and there's there's support in theory somewhere around the current level, or maybe twenty three hundred, which gets mentioned a lot. Um, and if that support doesn't hold, I mean, that's a pretty dire. That'll be a pretty dire indication for uh, for the global economy. But I mean, what's going on in China is is that uh, only recently, like in the last week or two, has this slowdown in China. And by the way, the government's engineering this. They're engineering this by tightening their lending, uh, raising reserve requirements for banks, and basically letting people know that they're not happy about the very rapid growth that China's been seeing. And, uh, and that's, of course, partly in response to the very rapid increase in property prices in China. There's been a lot of talk about a bubble in Chinese property prices, and the government's very aware of that, and they've been trying to basically put property prices in China into reverse, and they've now succeeded in doing that. But what's interesting is just in the last week or so, this slowdown in China has spilled over into commodity prices. So we've seen some pretty sharp drops in oil. We've seen some dro sharp drops in copper with a rather monumental drop yesterday in copper yeah, where copper nice slid. Thing. Yeah, it dropped about 17, 18 cents, below, you know, right through $3. Uh, a lot of people expected, including me, expected some support at $3. But it cut through it like a knife through butter yesterday and actually wound up trading, uh, I think, around about two ninety two. Um, so, you know, we've seen an important breakdown in a lot of these, uh, a lot of these commodities. Um, you may recall I have these four, uh, what I call, manic swing indices. Well, those are all in, in, in moving very, very swiftly now. And they're really suggesting to me that we might see a repeat, and perhaps we're at the beginning of a repeat, of the deleveraging process we saw back in 2008. Um, yes. One of the features of the great deleveraging of 2008 was the sudden rise uh, in LIBOR, and we seem to be seeing something similar in Europe now, don't we? Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at the increases, um, not only in Europe, but if you look at the increases in LIBOR on a percentage basis, they're huge. Um, I think it's three months LIBOR has gone from about 40 basis points to about 60-some-odd basis points. Um, those absolute numbers aren't very big, but that's a 50% increase in LIBOR. So uh, that's enough for people to really take notice of it. And, um, you know, it, it, it may be just the beginning because I think what those 
rises in, in LIBOR are warning us is that there are some fears creeping back into the banking system. Um, and this is my big fear, that um, if things really blow up in Europe, um, and Europe isn't fixed yet, um, the banks may find that they've got problems on their balance sheets and fears about lending, uh, depositing money with banks might spread around the world again. And, uh, you know, it may seem to people, well, that's no problem. We'll fix it the same way we did last time. We'll get the governments to uh, heat up their printing prices and really print. Well, guess what? I mean, the governments really are not in the same position they were two years ago. It isn't going to be so easy for them to uh, borrow more money and uh, and splashing in the economy the way they back did back in 2008. Well, um, so, it, I was just going to say, if I was a, a European banker, or, well, sorry, any bank lending money into Europe, um, I'd be really nervous because the, the, the European currency is genuinely under threat at the moment. And with the actual currency, current, I mean, if, if you're lending dollars and you're based in America, you, you, you can feel fairly reassured that somehow you will be bailed out but with Europe with there being so many member states and the currency being under so much threat there is a genuine chance that if you lend money you won't get it back yeah well this is the thing um, because the currency I, I won't think, exist <laughs> yeah the, the currency won't exist I mean what and uncertainty is a very scary thing I mean what we know is that we know that governments all over the world and I think it's 25 20, 27 uh, states and uh, a huge majority of uh, uh, American states, too, are spending way more money than they, than they have in the way of tax revenues. So it becomes evident that um, something's going to have to give. I mean, in Greece, they've, they've uh, proposed some pretty draconian cuts. Now, a lot of people believe that the Greeks will never live up to those. And uh, therefore, there'll be uh, some pain coming for investors and bonds, you know, from the sovereign government of Greece. Uh, that's down the road. A lot of people believe that. But um, even if they do actually go ahead and make these cuts, it's going to have a negative Im impact on parts of the economy. People just won't have as much money to spend. So um, there are some pretty dramatic uh, changes coming just ahead of us. And you know, I really think where this is headed, and we started to talk about this a little bit on GEI, is the pain is going to have to be shared. I mean, there's an old saying, you know, ta don't tax me, don't tax, don't tax him, don't tax me, tax the man behind the tree. And the idea is that, well, look, I don't want the pain, and you don't want the pain. Well, they'll find somebody else to pass the pain on to. But I think we're now realizing, right around the world, that all of us are going to have to share in this pain. And the real challenge for the leaders of the world is going to be figuring out how to fairly spread that pain in some way. Now, to me, that means haircuts for lenders, people who, who've, uh, who've invested in bonds of these difficult countries are going to find they're not going to get 100 cents back on the dollar. They might get 80 cents. They might get 90 cents if they're lucky, but they're not going to get 100 cents back on the dollar eventually. Um, and at the same time, the government workers and the government pensions are going to have to take some kind of a hit. And I think as well, people are going to have to pay more tax. And on top of that, people who are relying on the government for various types of benefits are going to see a cut in their benefits too. So we're going to have to find a fair way of spreading that pain around 
so that all of us survive and that, you know, in, that there isn't too much pain injected on any in individual members of this party. We're all going to have to drink the toxic Kool-Aid, I'm afraid. Well, I, I, I think that's looking at the bigger picture. Um, if I look at it from my own point of view, I kind of think, well, you know, investing is a risky business. Uh, you know, I can lose money as well as making money. If I'm clever and I get it right, why should I be penalised when the profits of my investment are then going to be uh, taken by the government and invested badly? And so I get quite... Uh, uh, but then, you know, that's me looking at it from my point of view. And equally, somebody down the road who is maybe on benefits might say, well, I've worked all my life and now I'm... I'm I've got such and such wrong with me and I need to live off benefits. You know, why should that bloke who's making all this money investing in stocks and shares, why can't he give bit, be allocated to me? So I think there's, we're going to see a lot of resistance from all quarters um, to to sharing the pain, even though it's probably the right way forward. Absolutely. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? It's, it's Politics has been a business of promising things to people and effectively buying their votes. Um, Unfortunately, um, people, people's votes were being bought with their own money. I mean, ultimately, the taxpayers have to pay for all those promises. Um, and, you know, people on benefits as well have, have enjoyed an you know, increase in their benefits over the last 10, 20, 30 years, um, you know, in line with the, the growth in the economy. Well, the economy is shrinking now and the tax base is shrinking. So not only are people going to have to pay more taxes and not only might some investors take some haircuts, but people on benefits are going to have to see some of their benefits cut as well. And I really think it means a big change in people's expectations is coming. I think we're really going to have to look carefully at this whole entitlement culture, people thinking they're entitled to things simply because they're alive. Well, I, 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 I agree, but I still don't think we're there yet. I mean, I think it's going to take some real pain before before that i mean just talking to people in the lead up to the election and i was saying we need smaller government we need less deficits and all the all the usual uh kind of libertarian arguments um and i was expecting everyone to agree with me in the pub and nobody did it wasn't like it wasn't like i had one person or two person and 10 against me nobody agreed with me it's people are still very much rooted in that kind of uh welfare state helping others attitude and and you know there's a there's a there's a lot going for that attitude my dad for example is very pro the welfare state and he reckons he would never be where he is today without you know government subsidy but but you know i disagree with him and and i think it's actually a case of being cruel to be kind and people need to take responsibility for their own lives they'll end up actually being a lot more happier if they're not dependent on somebody else but at the moment no leader has that mandate well, it's true. I mean, you and I can talk about it here on a podcast. We can talk about it amongst ourselves, but we're not actually going out and asking people for their votes. Um, and, you know, the, the, the interesting thing, though, here at the moment is that with this coalition government um, and with two of the three major parties sitting around the same cabinet table, uh, I really think there's a chance that they'll be able to make some tougher decisions than if it was one simply one party sitting there in the room. And, you know, I do think it's pretty obvious that they've decided to, to try and get all the bad news out early. This is a very good technique 
because they really want to show that the previous government, the labor government, was responsible for the mess we're in now. So there's the pain when it comes, and perhaps it'll come fairly soon in some ways. That pain can be blamed on the you know, mismanagement of the previous people rather than the new ones that come in office now and are faced with this big mess to fix. Yeah, it's quite clear that's what they're doing. I mean, there was the reports earlier in the week about uh, um, Labour having lied about how bad the finances are. Uh, and, you know, it's clear that that's... And we've got the emergency budget coming in next week and this talk about 50% capital gains. gains. I think they're kind of, they've leaked a rumour to scare people and so the people will be relieved when it's only 35 or 40% capital gains. But the thought of 50% capital gains tax, I mean, even I would well, leave. Well, <laughs> look, that's, that's, that's really dangerous because... You know, at its roots, the economy is really relying on the private sector to generate the surplus wealth that's uh, really used to pay the taxes and keep the whole game going. And if you start squeezing the people who are creating the private wealth, then, um, you know, you're actually making the pie smaller rather than making it bigger. So, you know, I think this all has to be looked at very carefully. That's why I think the pain really needs to be shared. Sure, there are going to be higher taxes to be paid in some areas. You know, personally, I think it's a bit silly that um, in the UK that uh, buy-to-let investors pay, what is it, only 18% tax on their capital gains? It really seems pretty low to me. I mean, in Hong Kong, where the tax is 16% um, on certain types of property-related capital gains, it makes sense because the government's in surplus and the overall tax rates are, you know, 16% maximum. So that does kind of make sense here. But um, for such a low tax rate for an activity, which, let's face it, buy-to-let investing doesn't really add very much to the economy. Um, You know, we need to encourage more productive types of activity that create jobs. I mean, tarting up homes and so forth is really not what the UK economy needs right now. There's been too much of that. What's needed is the creation of new jobs in small and medium enterprises, private investment, that sort of area. Well, now, that's me as a foreigner speaking. I used to live in the UK. Uh, I suppose I'm entitled to an opinion because I did pay a fair amount of tax rather to the UK. But, um, you know, in the end, I'd like to see globally, I'd like to see governments... Um, you know, really return back to the principle that they've got to encourage private enterprise and private business. Well, because that's a real wealth engine. I, I couldn't agree more, Mike. And I'm sitting here having sold my house a few years ago and I'm renting and I'm just waiting. To, I can't wait for this for a bit of pain so that we can get rid of this culture of uh, relying on asset price inflation to delude you that that's real wealth. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to buy a house again. But anyway, let's uh, let's move on and um just I know you've got to go. Let's just quickly uh, discuss. I mean, commodities, they've had a big sell-off, so they're probably going to get some kind of bounce, but it looks a bit nasty. Uh, stock indexes look nasty. Gold has held up just uh, today. It's just slid below uh, 12.20. It's all-time high, and it's at about 12.50. Dean, so gold's mm-hmm. on a bit of a knife edge. How are you positioned for all of this? Well, um, well I, I think... People who read GI will be aware that, um, you know, I started a thread uh, about the gold price suggesting that I'm flashing a yellow uh, alert now that now might be an interesting time to take some profits. Um, probably you should be looking at gold and prices other than dollars where you see it's really had a pretty huge run up in euros and sterling and so forth. And it wouldn't surprise me that 
you know, in every currency, you t- see a bit of a pause in gold. Uh, Tom O'Brien, who seems to uh, have called the gold uh, prices accurately as anybody over the last two or three years, uh, is talking about a drop of maybe 150 possibly $200 in the gold price back to uh, 1050 maybe 1080 something like that. I, I could easily see that happening. So, And you never know. Once the price starts dropping, if it does start dropping, it might even go further than that. And we're into we're into another deleveraging. It looks like here, and if it gets nasty like it did in two thousand eight, you know we could see a much bigger sell off than that. So, look, I, I have lots of fundamental reasons for wanting to own gold long term, but I've decided to lighten up. So, I sold somewhere. I've got some gold in one of my accounts. I have a fair amount of gold which I bought aggressively, um, at you know below eleven hundred dollars. Um, and uh, so that's up, I don't know, 14%, I think it was, uh, something like that. So I took 20% or so of that off the table yesterday um, when gold was trading around 1135, 1140. Um, sorry, t- exactly, 12, 1235, 1240, those sort of levels. Um, I would have sold more, but I do think I, I want to keep part of my uh, my portfolio in, in gold. Um And uh, um, it's interesting that Tom O'Brien has basically sold virtually all his gold. So uh, I was surprised to hear that because uh, he's aware of all the fundamental reasons why gold's a good place to be. Um, But he's decided, you know, after being long gold from, say, say $283 to really basically sell almost everything. So it'll be interesting to see if he's right. That's, uh, That's a big call. Um, well, uh, I, I'm I'm stuttering, Mike, because I'm slightly amazed that, that uh, Tom Brian sold that much gold. Um, listen, uh, are you, you're, you, you're, so presumably your, your portfolio is sitting largely in cash then? Well, I, yes, and I have a, a, a pleasant uh, duty now, and I have to uh, sort of leave here in, a, in the next uh, couple of minutes, uh, three minutes. I've got to go to my lawyer. And uh, sign some documents and pick up a check for uh, one of the Hong Kong properties that we sold. And uh, it looks like the Hong Kong property market has now uh, made its peak. Um, there was a pretty uh, bad auction here in Hong Kong in the last week. And that's kind of put uh, the market into, uh, into a sell mode. Um, and uh, so we're pretty comfortable now, and we've got a fair amount of cash to invest. I, I think the one place, and I, I'm waiting for things to come a bit cheaper so I can buy across the board, but the one place I've been comfortable buying the last few days is the Swiss franc. And, and I'll just tell you quickly the argument for that is that uh, the euro is down a lot. It's oversold. Uh, I think the sentiment towards the euro is about as negative as it's ever been. Um, and the uh, the euros dragged the Swiss franc down with it. So the Swiss franc's been dragged down from about a dollar, I think, was the top, uh, right right around exactly a dollar. It was dragged down to under ninety cents, and I've been buying it below ninety cents the last few days. And my bet there is that someday we're going to see a weak dollar, and uh, at that point we'll probably see uh, the Swiss franc uh, back above a dollar, maybe well below, maybe well above a dollar. So uh, buying it at 90 cents looks like a pretty good bet. And uh, when I'm selling gold, I like to put my money somewhere that uh, looks like a safe haven. And that's one of the few places I'm comfortable with at the moment. Uh, 
Well, that's very interesting. That's probably a very good call. Mike, um, it's always a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, it's difficult to know which ca cash to go to at the moment because of uh, all these uh, various rumblings and ramifications. But the Swiss franc, uh, I would say, looks like a, a good bet in theory. As soon as this podcast is over, I'm going to go and look at a chart. But, Mike, <laughs> well, uh, wh why don't you give out your well, website? Oh, go on. I will. I'll just mention one further thing. There is a thread about the Swiss franc. And if you go on there on globaledgeinvestors.com, uh, it's on the first page or two about the Swiss franc. What you will find, and I recommend people might want to have a look at this, that gold, the Swiss franc is no longer officially backed by gold. Uh, there used to be a backing of 40% and then 30%. And um, now I think the backing uh, of gold is down. They've sold a lot of their gold. It's down in the region of about 15%. So there is still some gold there, but it isn't officially backed the way it used to be. But uh, I still think it's one of the better currencies going at the moment. Yeah. And uh, if there's some kind of global banking crisis, you can rest assured that a lot of, lot of money will flee to Switzerland. <laughs> Mike Hampton, uh, thank you very much. Uh, what, what's My your pleasure, Dominic. So give, give out your it's, website. Sure. Uh, GlobalEdgeInvestors.com Mike, once again, thank you for your time and, and good luck with your lawyer. My pleasure. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 